Welcome to Stagger University. All right, everyone, welcome in to Stagger University. I am your professor for the day. That doesn't sound right. Uh, JD Smith, along with my brother Derek Smith, we have been watching motorsports, NASCAR specifically, uh, for over 30 years, each of us, pretty much our entire lives. And we love motorsports. Uh, the idea with Stagger as a podcast was we want to bridge a gap between the like hardcore racing fans and people who watch this stuff all the time and the people who kind of follow it but maybe can't watch every race that's kind of what we want for stagger as a as a community we we want to foster discussion and questions and if you don't understand something you should never be ashamed to ask it we're here for you we love racing and we want more people to love racing like we do uh so whether it's indycar nascar road racing dirt tracks whatever it is if you got a question, that's kind of what Stagger University is here to answer. Uh, in the coming weeks, we hope to do more of these where we answer uh, the, the who, what, where, when, how of racing. So might be we take a whole series like IMSA or IndyCar or like we're going to do today with NASCAR. Might be something like that where we just break that down and give you a big general broad view of what that is. Might be that we take a personality from racing like Roger Penske or Richard Petty or other guys whose name starts with an R and a P. I don't know, um, but we're <laughs> we're gonna maybe do one episode just on someone like that, and then also maybe we'll do a specific episode if, uh, well, you know, like Daytona this year, Ryan Newman had a bad accident, and there was a lot of discussion after he was okay about, you know, why did the car flip like that, and and what was the what was the Newman bar that people were talking about, which is actually something he helped, uh, you know, kind of push through in the safety aspect for NASCAR. Uh, what were they doing to fix that? We might spend an episode just talking about that. So if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, maybe that you're afraid to ask about, but you'd like to know about it, hit us up on Twitter at stagger podcast. Uh, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram at that handle. And then obviously you can also go to Facebook, join our Facebook group, Stagger Nation. You could ask it there and you might get someone else to answer it. Maybe not even one of us, but uh, that's the goal is we want to foster more discussions. So today we are going to be delving into the world of NASCAR. We're going to do two of these about NASCAR. We're calling it NASCAR 101. Uh, the first podcast is going to be about the history of NASCAR, how it kind of came to be, what the term stock car means, all that stuff. What is the budget for a NASCAR team? Why do they have teams? We'll get into all that. Second episode is going to be more about day of a race. You're watching a race. You're watching a broadcast, and they throw out a bunch of terms. You know, uh, they, they say, oh, they might have to black flag that guy. What does that mean? Why do they have a competition caution? And I have to say, a shout-out needs to go to our guy who maybe – he's like my new favorite racing fan, and I, I love hearing from – people who are maybe new to the sport and are not afraid to just ask questions. Bernard Pollard, a.k.a. at CrushBoy31 on Twitter, the Super Bowl champion, former NFL player, of course, played with the Chiefs, with the Ravens, Titans, uh, you know, great player. He's a big NASCAR fan, and he's asking a ton of questions on Twitter. So some of these questions are actually questions that he asked. So Bernard, if you get to check this out, I hope you enjoy it, and I hope it answers some of your questions in a little more detail. I know he's had a ton of answers already on Twitter, but I thought if there are people who maybe didn't get to see that or missed that and would like to have an audio point of reference they can come back to, you know, listen to it again and again and again if you need a refresher course, that's what we're here for. So we're putting it out there. You can listen to it however you feel comfortable. Uh, but yes, 
thank you for checking out the first inaugural episode of Stagger University. Take it away, us. All right, so the first thing we're going to tackle today is what is NASCAR? Uh, well, the short answer is it is the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing. It was founded in 1948 by Big Bill France, or Bill France to those who don't know him. Uh, he was a mechanic in Florida who organized races on the beach in Daytona, and eventually he became the guy who ran everything. Uh, the France family still owns NASCAR. They also own tracks like Daytona, Talladega, and others. So, Derek, anything you want to add to uh, NASCAR, the story there of how they started? Oh, yeah, they started. Uh, so way back in the day, there used to be a picture like, I don't know, semi-pro wrestling promoters. Like when you when you hear that, you probably think of someone who's probably a little shady. Right. Um, so that's kind of how racing promoters were. They'd they promise drivers if they came in, there'd be a thousand dollar purse or two thousand dollar purse to the winner. And they collect all the ticket gate money and about 20 laps in the race, they'd leave town with all the money. Drivers would be left, you know, having traveled 50, 100 miles, maybe even 200 miles to the race with no prize money, no trophy, no nothing. So they were getting tired of that. So Bill France had the wisdom to get all the track promoters together and basically form NASCAR. And they did that at a hotel that's still uh, standing in Daytona Beach, Florida called the Streamline. Uh, at a rooftop bar. So that happened in 1948. And we're still here today in 2020 talking about this great sport called NASCAR. Yeah. Um, so that you can go visit it. You can see literally where the history occurred if you'd like to. Um, yeah. So, all right. So we said National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing. What is a stock car? Um, that, that name has kind of, <laughs> it's got a lot of different meanings to it because it used to mean a car that was barely modified like there used to be in racing and there still is this there used to be stock cars and there used to be modifieds modifieds were cars where they like ripped the fenders off they could be like they could cut the roof line down uh the engine could be like exposed and you still see a version of modifieds they race all over the country um so stock cars were more the idea was they look like regular street cars but they've really never been completely stock, even back in the early days of NASCAR, because the history of NASCAR was, prior to Bill France, the reason guys were even having races and why all these local promoters would promote racetracks and, and little series like that was because guys had these cars that ran moonshine. And to do that, it was illegal, of course, to, to ship moonshine or to produce moonshine. So they didn't want to get caught by the cops. These guys would take their cars. They would tune them. They would change the suspension. They actually put like big truck suspensions in these cars to try to get them, you know, to handle these giant loads of, of moonshine they'd be carrying in the trunk. They'd have secret compartments and they could still outrun the cops who had cars that were much lighter and faster <laughs> theoretically. So they'd see like an old car. They'd think, OK, well, let's pull this guy over and then he'd leave him in the dust. And eventually, these old moonshiners got around and said, well, my car, you know, I'm the best driver here in North Carolina, or I'm the best driver in, you know, East Coast. And then they'd say, no, that guy is the best driver. And so then that's how they started getting tracks. But these cars never were stock, even when they started racing, because they were always modified to some level. They tuned the engines, they tuned the suspensions. Um, however, NASCAR's rule is that your car has to be based on an actual car. Like if you were to watch sports cars, the IMSA races that uh, Derek and I both like, and you were to watch like a prototype series, 
those cars look like spaceships. If you look at an Indy car, Indy car <laughs> looks like something out of Star Wars at times, you know, yeah. Formula especially One. Now. Yeah, yeah. Especially now. It looks crazy. <laughs> Formula One's insane with the amount of, uh, you know, downforce that they have. And you look at sprint cars, those don't look like anything that's ever run on. the Yes. Road. Those cars, none of them have to be based on a production vehicle, whereas stock cars by NASCAR rules have to be based off of a an actual approved production vehicle. So the ones in NASCAR, you have Ford Mustangs, even though they're not Ford Mustangs, they just they look like them kind of uh, Chevy Camaros and Toyota Camrys. Those are the the ones they have now. They, I mean, they used to run Buicks. <laughs> they used to Oldsmobiles, run Oldsmobiles, <laughs> Pontiac. Yeah, when those were around. Sure. And uh, there's always yeah. rumors of like who's going to be back in the sport. Like Dodge is a is a, you know, make that people have wanted to see come back and maybe they will. They were around for a little while in the mid 2000s, um, but they they went away. Uh, there's been rumors yeah. of Honda possibly joining up and like putting the Acura brand in there. So, yeah, who hey, knows how that will there happen. Is, there is something to be said of Dodge. And I actually have a good friend of mine who sells Dodges uh, as, as his full-time job. And I've told him the moment Dodge comes back into NASCAR, by your job career, you now have to become a NASCAR fan. So, Chris, <laughs> if you are listening to this, uh, this is your episode. This is the episode I talked about. So get on it and start watching NASCAR. So when Dodge is here, you're ready to root for whoever joins the team. Uh, yes, that is a good idea. Now, also, <laughs> these engines can produce over 700 horsepower. So, you know, if you're not familiar with cars very much, like, you know, a Ford Mustang, a souped up Ford Mustang from the factory that has like, you know, if it's like a, a Shelby or a Cobra or, you know, one of the one of the add-on packages it can get up over 500 horsepower but it weighs way more than these stock cars do and it definitely doesn't have all the extra little tricks and trades that make uh, a nascar stock car what it is these cars also have full roll cages they have no passenger seat they can top 200 miles an hour they're nothing like the stock car but it's a term that's here and it's never going away so they're stock cars yeah. And, and currently too, NASCAR is always in a battle with the owners or the drivers or the fans. I, I don't know whoever you would want to say about it, but they're always trying to find the manufacturers are trying to work with NASCAR to find cheaper, more economically viable engine platforms. So uh, with a tapered spacer that comes into play, it limits the powers on tracks that are under a mile to 750 horsepower. But those, uh, those horsepowers, do it does decrease on tracks longer than a mile. So Pocono or Indianapolis, those horsepowers actually run in the 550s, upper 500 range as far as a horsepower limit. So there is some different engines for each different race almost. Yeah. Uh, racetrack, I should say. Now, you said a word there, tapered spacer. Just for people who who want to get into the, the nerding out of, of racing, we talked about the tapered spacers before a little bit on these podcasts. But uh, real quick, it is... NASCAR engines used to have what's called a carburetor where the air comes in through the top of the engine through this carburetor they would limit the size of that with what's called a restrictor plate and NASCAR went away from that when they went to electronic fuel injection that's a different way of getting air into the engine and a different way of you know managing the spark in the engine all different things so now that's all electronically controlled and uh, because of that they now use a different what's called throttle body the throttle body is where they put the tapered spacer it is basically the electronic fuel injection version of a restrictor plate so when you hear tapered spacer all you should think of is thing that slows down the engine or limits the amount of explosiveness of the engine so if you have a bigger tapered spacer that means more air gets into the engine quicker and thus it produces more power 
if they have smaller tapered spacer, meaning the holes are smaller on the top, then that allows less air to get in and that makes the engine slower. So like Derek was saying, when you go to a bigger track, they put a smaller tapered spacer on to limit the amount of air that goes in the engine so it's not as powerful. But yeah, if you go to Martinsville, they're wide open, 700 horsepower, because Martinsville is a tiny little track and they can't get up to 200 miles an hour on that track. More on the difference between tracks coming up in a second. But first, let's talk about the Cup and the Xfinity, because you may hear those terms. This a Cup driver. Oh, that's an Xfinity driver. Oh, that guy is dropping down to Xfinity to run a race. Or, you know, this Xfinity guy is getting a, a Cup ride. What does all that mean? Well, Cup is the top level. It used to be called Winston Cup, sponsored by Winston Cigarettes way back in the day. They don't do that anymore because illegal. <laughs> we can't have <laughs> cigarette sponsorships. So that's gone. Um, it used to be called the Monster Energy Cup. It used to be called the Nextel Cup. Those were all sponsors. Basically, the Cup level is the major leagues of NASCAR. It's the of the NASCAR brands. It is the highest level you get to. Um, the Xfinity Series is used to be called the Bush Series. It used to be called the Grand National Series. Um, the Late Model Sportsman Series used to be called. Basically, what that series has always been is the second level. It is not the big dogs, but is the level right under the big dogs. And that Xfinity series is a weird holding place because you have a few guys in there like a Justin Allgaier who never really got the big shot in NASCAR. I mean, he's run in cup series. I mean, he's run races, but he is primarily an Xfinity driver and he's Mm -hmm. one of the best Xfinity drivers out there. But there are also guys driving in Xfinity who are, like five years into their career or less. And they are on their way up and trying to get up to the cup level. And a lot of them are under 25. Uh, So you have a mix there. You have some older guys who have been doing it for a while and put in their time and they're paying their dues and they're waiting for a shot. And there's other guys who are just rapidly rising up the ranks. They're going to go up to cup series. They may crash out in a couple of years and then be out of the sport. So it's, it's a, it's a weird mix, but Xfinity is like the, the wait and see area. You know, it's kind of the, for lack of a better term, the holding area um, for the for the next generation of NASCAR. Let's go to the truck series. The truck series, so you might say, why, why do they have trucks? Um, the truck series, just like Xfinity, is a minor league for the cup series, more or less. There are, uh, you know, drivers in the, in the truck series where this may be their first time on a super speedway, or this may be their first time going somewhere and racing at a, at a track where uh, they can go 200 miles an hour. So that is kind of the entryway for young up-and-coming racers who might have a bright future. Usually what these, you know, Toyota or Ford or Chevy or a big sponsor maybe will see one of these guys or gals racing at a local track and they'll say, we want that driver, but they're not ready yet for cup. So they'll throw them in the truck series to see if they can handle it. And if they excel in the truck series, then they move them up to Xfinity. Maybe they run a couple years there, like we were talking about, and then they go up to the cup series. That's the ideal progression. If you look at a recent example, of this would be Christopher Bell. Christopher Bell had a really good dirt career as a young racer out of Oklahoma. He won about everywhere he drove in the, you know, in the dirt racing sprint cars midgets all that stuff so they wanted to see how he would do on pavement and very quickly they threw him into the truck series and he was really good in the truck series they put him up in the xfinity series he was really good in the xfinity series so now they've moved him up and now he is uh 
racing for uh, Levine Family Racing, which is an affiliate partner of Joe Gibbs Racing. And he's a Toyota guy, so he will eventually be driving one of the Joe Gibbs Racing cars, most likely. So, um, But that's what the Truck Series is. So if you can get sponsorship, you don't have to be a young kid to run the Truck Series. There are guys who are in the Truck Series who've been running it for, for years. Uh, Thor Sports Motorsports out of Ohio is uh, one of the longest tenured NASCAR teams. They've been around since 1996 or 1997, based out of uh, Sandusky, right, Derek? Is that where Thor yeah, Sports is? Yeah, Sandusky, Ohio is where their shop is, which is different from most of the tracks. We should probably mention that most of the or shops, I should say, most of these cars, um, they don't come from a manufacturer like Ford or Toyota or Chevy. They are made and built by the race teams on templates so that all the cars match the specs that NASCAR has provided in the rule book. And most of those teams and fabricators and sup suppliers and everything, that's all located in the Charlotte metro area. Uh, but a few teams have made successful ventures, uh, one being Furniture Row Racing, who's won a championship. They're no longer around, but they were based in Denver. And the other is Thor Sport Racing, which is based in Sandusky, Ohio. They've won multiple truck championships and they seem to have a, a system down where they've got a multi-truck team uh, on the shores of Lake Erie, and they're able to attract high-quality employees uh, and engineers and mechanics uh, to work up at the lake as opposed to working in the Charlotte Metro Hub about eight hours south of there. Yeah. So they get it done. One thing I was going to say there is, so you have uh, Matt Crafton and Johnny Sauter, right? They both drive for Thor Sport. Yeah. And he's a weapon out there. That's what Mark Martin said one time about Johnny Sauter. He's well, a weapon out there. Well, those two guys have been in the sport for a while and they are some of the best drivers in the truck series, but they're not young. I mean, those guys have been racing for a while and they really know what they're doing and they are uh, as good as it gets in the truck series. So you do have that mix. You do have the, the long tenured teams with great, you know, older drivers who really know their stuff and you have the young kids and you have the teams that are there just basically to always put the young kids in and get them experience. And then they are gone in a couple of years. So I always yeah. say, if you like college football, um, you're probably going to gravitate more to, you know, the Xfinity series or the truck series, because that's where you're going to see the future guys that are eventually going to be in the NFL, which is the cup series. So uh, if yeah. that's if that's kind of where you go as far as football, if you can if you enjoy college football, you can kind of pick like a team you like a Thor sport or someone like that. People will follow that team and then watch the drivers that come through there because they do have drivers that are also young on the Thor sport team. But uh, yeah, they also have a couple old hands as well. Now, I mentioned teams. Let's talk about what a NASCAR team is. They often have more than one car and driver and pit crew. So let's talk about Rick Hendrick's team, okay? Hendrick Motorsports. It's one of the legendary teams in the Cup Series. They have four cars that run right now in the Cup Series. Jimmy Johnson's number 48, Chase Elliott's number 9, Alex Bowman's 88, and William Byron's 24. Those cars are owned by Rick Hendrick. And so each one of those cars has, you know, a, a, a guy who kind of runs the team, you know, the crew chief, they have an engineer, they have a staff of guys who work solely on that car. They have a pit crew that works when the car comes into the pits, they change all the tires. And that all is part of the, the 48 team, let's say Jimmy Johnson. Okay. But those guys all work for Hendrick Motorsports. So when you have multiple cars in your team of the organization, then Jimmy Johnson, if his car's not running well, but Chase Elliott's is like smoking everybody and qualifying, then 
Jimmy Johnson can walk over there and say, you know, hey, guys, what, what are you guys doing? What's your setup look like? They compare notes. They try to help each other. And that's one of the ways they try to win championships is by helping all their drivers be uh, in really good cars, not just have one of them. Um, the numbers in NASCAR do matter because Dale Earnhardt Jr., he used to drive the 88 car, as you may remember, but he retired. Rick Hendrick owns that team and he owns that number basically in NASCAR. So just like if you own the Yankees or the Cowboys, Rick Hendrick finds someone to put on the 88 uniform to wear, you know, to drive the 88. That's the same as putting on a Yankee yeah. uniform or or whatever. It's I'm not necessarily saying that brand is as iconic or whatever, but not like Jeff Gordon, the 24, that one was yeah. that's for that sure. One. Like as, as big as it gets. And William Byron got placed in that car. That's the responsibility he has. It's a huge responsibility mm -hmm. to be driving the 24 car that Jeff Gordon used to drive. Yeah. And at that particular shop, uh, as we mentioned, all the, all the cars get made in house. Uh, Rick Hendrick has two massive buildings that are connected and they have the, I believe it's the 4888 shop. And then they have the 249 shop. Uh, yes, so basically right. you have employees that kind of, I mean, there's almost two teams within a team. Um, but it's, it's funny, a couple of years ago, they actually changed around the numbers and the basically took the, the driver and the number and swapped them around. So I believe it was, this is going back a few years, but I believe it was Casey Kane and Jeff Gordon's team, maybe, yeah. uh, basically Jeff Gordon, uh, it used to be the 24 and number five shop, Yes, but Gordon used to be, it used to be 2448. So what they did is. Joe, Dale Jr. was struggling, so they basically took, and just to change things up, Rick Hendrick is known for putting people together that work together. Uh, he put Steve Letarte, which was on the 24 team, uh, the crew chief for the 24 team. He's now an NBC broadcaster. He put Dale Jr. with him. That was uh, Jeff Gordon's crew chief, and then put Jeff Gordon with Dale Jr.'s, actually hired a new crew chief, I believe. But So what happened is they literally, Dale Jr. took his seat and himself and his number and went and became basically the 24 team, but they rebranded it the, the 88. And the same thing happened with Jeff Gordon. He went down the, down the street to the next shop and basically took his seat his, himself and his number, and the 88 became the 24. Yeah, the they, number stays attached to not only the owner, but also the driver. Um, and that's, that's how you get those different situations working out. And uh, I believe Chase Elliott even made the change from the 24 to the 9, which is a historically Elliot number his dad ran that number. He ran that he's running that number now and run it at run it in the Xfinity series ran it, I should say. Um, so it, it's, it's all funny. Like if you want to dig into this numbers mean a lot when Danica Patrick had her five-year run here in the cup series, there was a team she's ran the number seven for years in IndyCar. And there was a small team called Tommy Baldwin racing. They have the number seven. They've had it for years. She came in Stuart Haas racing, wanted to get that number seven, Tommy Baldwin owns the number seven in NASCAR. It's Alan Kowicki's old number. It's a single digit number, which is very hard and very precious in NASCAR to have. Um, he kept it. And even though he has had a few years of dormancy or some part-time work, he still kept that number seven. And according to the NASCAR rules, he has every right to keep that number. Now, once you lose it, like the number eight, when Dale Jr. left DEI and they stopped running the number eight, that's how you see Tyler Reddick and last year, Daniel Hemrick running the number eight because it was an empty number that was sitting out there and RCR snapped it up. And that's how you have a number eight car sitting there uh, with the number three car, Austin Dillon. And since and this is uh, NASCAR 101, we should probably say DEI 
Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. That was a team yes. that doesn't exist any longer. RCR, Richard Childress Racing. Richard Childress, another car owner, he used to own the number three car that Dale Earnhardt ran many years ago. And that's why today his grandson, Austin Dillon, drives the number three car because Richard Childress still owns that number. Even though yes. Dale Earnhardt, you know, that he's been that number is, you know, been in the sport for 30, 40 years being used by Dale Earnhardt previously, you know, it wasn't used for a long time. Kevin Harvick, who now drives for Tony Stewart and drives the number four car, that he used to drive a number 29 car for Richard Childress because they didn't want to use a three. So they went with 29, which was, you know, I guess available and kind of close to 30 and mm -hmm. I don't know, whatever. They used 29. And so that was Richard Childress's number that he owned for that car for a while. And then eventually he decided, you know what? My grandson's coming up. It's been long enough. We're going to honor Dale. We're going to put the three back on a race car. And uh, that's how they did it. So, yeah. yeah. But and, those and numbers, those those numbers do like, stick around. What's the big deal about a number? It's just a number. You have to remember, too, a lot of these diehard fans, they'll tattoo a number on their chest, on their back, on their arm, and that's their driver's number. So you're, you're just not going to have a driver that is going to go be the three this year. Then, well, let's change up to the 15 next year. Well, let's do a rebrand two years later, the 27. Uh, unless he's changing seats and organizations, that's not going to happen. You're going to have a driver uh, change from the, you know, when Dale Earnhardt Jr. changed from the eight to the 88, one of the reasons he did that was so that his fans could just add another eight and have a tattoo artist maybe rebrand <laughs> the, the existing eight. Yeah, they wanted to stick with the eight, though, because that was his number and that's what but, he liked. And, and that's and one of the reasons the 88 was not a number that um, that was running around. And I think he even had that number. He chose that number because he couldn't get the eight from Teresa Earnhardt from DEI. Oh, yeah, they, so, couldn't, they, they couldn't pull the eight over there. So they're like, well, let's run an 88. I'll tell you what. And we probably at some point may need to do a whole episode on. Dale Earnhardt Incorporated, Teresa Earnhardt, and that whole situation. Because I like the money that I have. I would not like to get sued. So it's probably best to not talk about Teresa Earnhardt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Fair enough. Going back to the team thing here. If you're thinking of a team and saying, okay, so you said they've got a pit crew and they've got mechanics and they've got engineer and crew chief. So what do they have at these race shops? Like 20 employees, 30 employees. How many people work there? Believe it or not. It depends on the on the racing uh, team, but Rick Hendrick, Joe Gibbs Racing, those types of those are the top of the top in NASCAR. Those are the biggest teams. They have usually four cars, uh, and they are they're the best. They have over five hundred employees that work at Joe Gibbs Racing. Over five hundred employees work at Hendrick Motorsports, and they're not the only ones that have. There's a few others that have you know pretty big operations as well. They have campuses that look like a like a small community college i mean like you were talking about hendrick motorsports i've been there and it you literally pull up there's a gate you have to go through to get in you pull up and it's just like parking lot parking lot building giant building another building over here's a building they have a whole building for the engine shop where they're just working on engines that they develop and they give to other race teams other race teams pay them to build engi engines for them because they're so good at it um they have a museum on that facility it's great so if you're ever in the charlotte area and you're new to NASCAR and you want to learn a little bit about what it is like, go to Hendrick Motorsports, go to Joe Gibbs Racing and tour one of the shops. You will be floored by the amount of money that goes into these teams. And the money that goes into these teams is what leads us to sponsors because you can't fund all that. You can't have 500 employees and all this other stuff if you don't have sponsors. So the sponsors are the only reason NASCAR can function uh, it is estimated that the budget for 
like Rick Hendrick and for Hendrick Motorsports. I saw this. This is from an article in 2007. They said the budget for Hendrick Motorsports 2007 was $200 million for one year. Wow. That was the budget. I mean, if you look at it, Major League Baseball in 2007 did not have, probably maybe a handful of teams had a budget over $200 million. Like their budget to run their teams was more than what Major League Baseball teams was, was more than what NFL teams still. That's bigger than the salary cap in the NFL. And I can't remember in the NBA. I think it's bigger than what's in the NBA too. That's the amount of money that goes into those teams. Now, it has changed a bit over the years since 2007, but it is still, even for the smaller teams, Derek, and you've been to some of the smaller race shops, how much funding do you think like a Tommy Baldwin racing or Rick Ware racing, these teams, they probably need to run a full cup program, probably $10 million or more, right? To run one season uh, of cup? At least, at least 5 million for sure. It depends on how, how often you turn over the car, the, the parts. And if you're just out there to, we don't have too much of this back in the day, but, or, or, or currently, but back in the day, there were a big purse money, purse money that was, uh, published so everyone could see oh the 42nd place car made eighty thousand dollars i mean if you do the math times 30 what 32 races 36 races that's a decent way to make a living and you add a couple sponsors there maybe you throw in a a good car package at daytona or talladega and you get a chance to get on tv uh make some make about a million dollars in sponsorship you can break even and that's what a lot of teams did is they'd start the race they'd run two laps and then pull it in the garage and that would be it. And they claim they had a mechanical every single week that or electrical issue <laughs> yeah, that caused them to, 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 you know, stop racing, but they called them starting park teams. And we don't have that many anymore. NASCAR, they actually started making rules against it. So you had to have a reason. And I think the car would get impounded. The first car that would uh, go uh, out of the race for mechanical would actually get sent to the R and D center and they'd inspect it to see what was actually wrong with the car. Uh, so that kind of curtailed teams from doing that. Uh, and, and just collecting a paycheck and the RTA, which is another topic for another day, the race team Alliance that helped stop it too. The one thing too, I want to mention is that I've seen recent statistics that if you want to be a competitive top end NASCAR team, you're looking at about 25 to 30 million per team per per, per car. So if you're Rick Hendrick, yeah, you you have four four teams in your organization, you're looking at at least a hundred million and yeah. potentially 140 million or 130 million the difference between 5 million dollars and 25 million dollars in NASCAR well what does how does that make your car better what does that do what's the difference is that explain to people why like a team that makes that that runs on 5 million a year doesn't compete as well as a team that runs on 30 million a year what's the biggest difference you would think between those two if you are able to do some machining, fabricating. If you ever see a car flip over underneath Talladega or Daytona, there's a lot of technology that goes in there. There's wind tunnel testing. There's massaging on the car with fabrication that can fit within the templates, but also give you that extra speed aerodynamically and that extra grip to go faster. So there's all these different components. And then you see those engines that that get burned down every single race uh, that a a race winner has. They, They can afford to build a brand new engine for the next race. Guys at the back of the field, they might be on an engine plan that gives them five or 10 a year. So they've got to nurse that engine for, or at least do rebuilds on it where they're taking the block and cleaning it out and putting new, new rods in or different things like that. And those are situations where it's not ideal and you can't, you just can't match the speed of the, of the top tier teams like Hendrick, Joe Gibbs racing, Stuart Haas, 
uh, and the like. Pinsky, yeah. all those guys that can afford. I mean, Roger Pinsky, speaking of shops, has one of the most immaculate shops, shops you'll ever see. And there is a special kind of tile that he has on his shop floor. And it's uh, it's so delicate that at times it does break. There's a guy that his full-time job there, I don't know if he's still working there, but at least one time, his full-time job was to inspect all the tiles every day. And any tile that had a break in it from someone dropping a wrench or anything like that, it was his job to replace the tile with a new tile so that it was up to Roger Penske standard. My goodness. That just shows you yeah, how so, much. So he that's has not money something you're saying teams. that's not happening at like go fast racing. <laughs> they don't no. have a tile inspection guy. So if you see so for so just to put this in perspective, a little, little more on this. And and one thing we didn't even mention there, like when Hendrick shows up to a racetrack, when Gibbs shows up to a racetrack, when Penske shows up to a racetrack, the car they have was built for that track and it was probably been worked on for six to eight weeks before they got to that race and there's a new one for every racetrack they're going to now there might be parts of it that they reuse like they use uh, the 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 framework if you see the frame of the car which is called the chassis the underneath part that they bolt the suspension to the engine to the body to that chassis may be reused some chassis are used over and over and over again because they're really built well but other than that Hendrick and, and all those other teams, they're showing up with a brand new car every week. The back of the field guys, they're showing up with a car that, uh, in one case, Corey LaJoy just uh, finished, what, 15th, I think, at Martinsville in 2020. He finished uh, in that race, and the car he was driving was built in 2010. Not the, not the outside part, not the engine, not the suspension. Those are all new or newer but the frame itself was a 10-year-old chassis. That's not something that you're going to see from Penske. That's not something you're going to see from these other teams. They're not reusing. In fact, they probably bought it from one of those teams. They probably bought it from Roush or someone else that had used a Ford chassis at some point. They you know, cut it down and make it so that it still fits the, the parameters, but the chassis itself was built probably by one of these bigger teams. So yeah, that's, and then, that's the difference. So when you see a guy finishing... 26th and you know you might follow him on twitter or something and go man he's really excited about finishing 26 i wonder why that is well because his car is like a 38th place car so that means he got 12 spots better out of it than he probably should have so that can be the fun part of watching uh if you if you watch some of these teams when you see like a michael mcdowell who finishes in the top 10 and his car is not really it's it's like a top 20 car maybe but it's not a top 10 car typically when he gets that kind of finish out of it he's going to be really excited people who root for him are going to be really excited so you find ways to root for teams that you know aren't necessarily going to win but they could maybe finish in the top five or top 10 and that would be a good day for them and that's all because of the budgets and the different costs um right and then to add to that too when you look at these race shops they a, a team like richard petty motorsports they're on richard childress racing's campus so they get their, they have a technical alliance with them. Uh, so they get their their chassis and engines from Richard Childress Racing. And you look at Go Fast Racing, they just had a new partnership this year with Stuart Haas. So they get some components from Stuart Haas, some chassis, different things like that. Um, so they're running a year or two old chassis, at least Go Fast is. They're not getting the brand new ones pumped in. I think our, our Richard Petty Motorsports deal is a little better with RCR. Um, but same thing that goes with Levine, Levine Family Racing. Jeff Gordon will all the time call uh, Levine Family Racing the number 95, a Joe Gibbs teammate, because they get a technical alliance 
from Joe Gibbs Racing. Uh, so all these shops, you, you could if you drive through Charlotte or Winston Salem, you can tell which shop is the you know has the more money <laughs> or the bigger the shop. It's kind of like bars. The more windows in a bar, the nicer the bar is, right? Um, yeah. One other thing NASCAR used to do. One last thing on engines. So NASCAR in 2017 instituted a rule that says teams have to use 13 engines more than once. So that means 26 races out of the year, you're going to have an engine that's either brand new or a one-off engine. But the engine's tied, 13 engines are tied to 26 races. So that is done, you know, like a go-fast racing or uh, some of these smaller teams, you know, they're not affected by that rule because they are always using reusing engines right but this is for the right. gibbs racing where they would bring a new engine to the track or the penske's bring a new engine to the track they're saying nope for 13 races you have to bring an engine that you've already used and use it again so that's an effort to try to limit the advantage they have by the amount of money they have you know now they have to reuse an engine just like some of these other teams do all the time um mm. it got so bad actually nascar used to have you'd have a qualifying motor where you'd go out, you'd run your qualifying laps, they take the motor out, and then they put the race engine in. Uh, NASCAR <laughs> has changed that, so you can't do that anymore. You have to run the whole weekend on the same engine you brought. But So the bigger teams would put in a motor that they knew wouldn't last 500 miles, but it could get you the fastest lap time for, for two laps, and then they'd take it out. And then they might you know refurbish it, use it again to qualify the next week or something, but they didn't use that motor to race. A lot of teams couldn't do that. So this is to try to make the sport a little more equal. Uh, let's talk about the tracks. So you may have heard these terms. Super Speedway, uh, intermediate, mile and a half, cookie cutter, short tracks, road courses. What are all those? So let's start with Super Speedways. Daytona is probably the most famous Super Speedway in the world. Would you agree with that? Daytona, absolutely. It's the world center of racing, as it says on its uh, sign. Yes. And the reason for that, the Super Speedway, the, what it gets its, you know, notoriety for is it's a track that is over two miles long and in daytona's case talladega's case it is a track that has a high degree banking in the turns that high degree banking if you were to stand on it it would be like standing on your roof you know where it's so steep you'd almost have to lean forward to just stay upright you couldn't stand flat-footed on it you'd fall over um that is what the cars are on and it allows them to not have to brake at all, basically, uh, when they go into those turns. Some some guys will, but for the most part, you can run that track wide open in a NASCAR stock car, and you never have to brake. You barely have to lift. So those tracks focus a lot on aerodynamics because it's not about your tires, and it's not about your brakes, and it's not about your suspension. Those things are all important, but the biggest thing in those tracks is going to be the aerodynamics. And that's why you see all these cars kind of bunched together. Uh, they actually do things to limit the speed, as you talked about earlier, at the super speedways. But Daytona and Talladega are the most famous super speedways. You can throw in tracks, I guess, like Michigan, right? Michigan's a two-mile track. Uh, and it has high speeds. They don't do as much to limit the cars there. But they do get over 200 miles an hour, at least they used to, before they instituted some rules changes in the last couple of years. Pocono is technically a super speedway, right? It's a big track. Now, Pocono and Indianapolis are both over two miles, but they don't have the high degree of banking. They have very, they're flat tracks, um, very limited banking in the corners. So you do have to break. You do have to adjust what you're doing. Can't just run those wide open. Um, 
because they they're even though they're big and you get a lot of speed you have to use your brakes so um those are the super speedways those are the bigger tracks out there um intermediate tracks are the probably what would you say Derek the most common track in NASCAR uh yeah the yeah, intermediate tracks definitely are the the track that if you think back to when NASCAR was really building up uh you wanted the idea was to get as many fans as possible and to watch a race so if you have a short track you can stack them up high like Bristol but a lot of people didn't want to have that model of, of, a, of a stadium atmosphere almost so to have the campers to have all the space you want to have the most revenue possible and that's how you may have the Charlottes, the Kansases, the Kentuckys, Chicagoland. Now, we call them all cookie cutters sometimes, but they're all different. Um, they're, 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 it's they're, like, they're different, but they're not that different. They're, they're it's usually like, it's one like calling baseball fields cookie cutters in the sense that they all have a center left and a right field. Um, and they all have an infield and two dugouts. But each dimensions is a little bit different. Kentucky's super bumpy. Chicago's got different grooves. Kansas is nice and wide. And Charlotte is a track where you better have speed and clean air and you'll just shoot away from the pack. Uh, so each track is different. You got to approach it differently. And and I will right. say as much as they do have their nuances, if you were to go look back on the last five years and look at who wins at, you know, Chicagoland, Kansas, Kentucky, California, Charlotte, almost every time you're going to look at those and you're going to see the same six or seven drivers right up in the top five. Not always. There's always an exception to that rule, but the the best teams usually come to the top at those tracks because they're so similar they can build cars that can maximize those tracks versus say a short track or a super speedway where the you know there's a little more variable there it takes a lot of you have to have little tricks right you have to have every little extra aspect because so many teams are familiar with those tracks so the big funded teams tend tend to do a little better on those tracks um, at those intermediate tracks. NASCAR fans aren't typically fans of those tracks because, now I shouldn't say they're not fans of them. There are people who don't like the intermediate tracks because they sometimes result in racing where it's strung out and then a you know, first place guy might be out by three seconds and the second place guy over 20 laps may knock off a tenth per lap and suddenly he's caught him, you know, and then and then now you've got a little battle there, but it takes a long time. It's very different than at Daytona where all the cars are within a second of each other. They're all right together and you see 20 passes each lap. It's different type of racing. I don't think it's bad, but some people don't like the intermediate tracks. And then you got short tracks. Short tracks are a mile in length or shorter. Uh, they're probably the most fun tracks on the, on the circuit, at least for me. Um, Martinsville and Richmond are examples of a short track. Probably the most famous one you mentioned it earlier is Bristol. It's a half mile. It's high banking and it's surrounded completely by the stands like there, most racetracks. There's, you know, there's a grandstand and then there's a bunch of open air, you know, around the track. Bristol is small enough and they so many people like going there. It's actually built like a college football stadium, like the Rose Bowl, you know, <laughs> picture the Rose Bowl. But then instead of there being a football field in it, there's a half mile racetrack inside. That's how big that stadium is. It's uh truly one of the things you have to see to believe i i've been there many times and i still every time i walk up to it i'm just like i can't believe this is built i can't believe someone built this and they're gonna inside of there they're gonna run cars at 150 miles an hour i cannot believe i'm about to watch this um the other thing about short tracks you might hear the term lapping like a lap car what that means is that the front car has gotten all the way around to the back of the field because it's a small track and there's 40 cars 
the front car may run into lap traffic where he's passing someone who is on the lap that he's finishing. So if that guy is finishing lap 100, the lap car in front of him is only on lap 99. You know what I mean? Um, so that's, that's what a lap car is. And so what happens is those smaller teams, those slower cars or a car that has had damage will end up in the back of the pack and the fastest cars will end up passing them. Well, the second and third place guys, as the first place guy comes up to the lap cars, second and third place, they might be able to catch him because he's slowing down a little bit. So those are things to watch that are fun. That happens at short tracks. Uh, and then quickly road courses are exactly what you expect. Um, they're, they're, courses that are set up more like roads where they have to turn right and not just left they're not ovals uh they are not always like in a city they do actually nascar really doesn't do that they don't run like city courses um but they have yet Wat- not yet. yet maybe someday hopefully yeah uh but watkins Glen and sonoma are the two that the cup series goes to sonoma is in california and wine country watkins Glen is in the finger lakes region of new york upstate new york uh those are both beautiful tracks and those are a lot of fun to watch, and those races always result in some weird little oddities. Uh, you will see guys get hired by the smaller teams who are road racers. Some of them are indie car drivers. Some of them are sports car drivers. Uh, some of them have never been in a NASCAR stock car, but they'll put them in one for the road course. They're called road course ringers is what a lot of people will call them. They get hired in. They do that, and uh, they might finish in the top 10. They might win the race because they're just that good at getting around a road course. And a lot of NASCAR guys, a lot of cup guys, their expertise has been in ovals. Now, more and more, those guys that run cup series are the best of the best. So they figured out road courses too. And a lot of them uh, are pretty good. But a guy who's a famous example would be AJ Allmendinger, who kind of got his start in NASCAR because he was a road course guy. And he was he would be brought in and he ended up actually getting a, a top tier NASCAR ride uh, for for quite a few years. And now he still runs the Xfinity series for colleague racing. Um, but yeah, AJ Allmendinger, road course ringer, who actually turned that into uh, a NASCAR career. So absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the final thing we'll talk about here. This is all about, you know, kind of what NASCAR teams are. We didn't mention when we we're talking about budgets, the haulers you have. <laughs> These haulers are, I mean, what, million dollars or more? These are these are giant uh, semi-trucks that have room to store a couple of cars in the top of them. The bottom half, they store all the equipment you would need to fix a car, all the replacement parts, including you know even an engine, transmission, all the way down to nuts and bolts. They have a lounge in there for guys to relax in before the race, the pit crews, it's air-conditioned, they have TVs, they have computers all kinds of stuff they can use there um these things how much would you say one of those costs i mean a million dollars or more probably put that together uh yeah i mean especially with the i mean with you have a lounge in there where you're having your all your engineers meeting you're doing your debriefs in there so it's basically like a like a rolling office with a a tool garage you know all the tools you would ever need parts and pieces to replace the car and there's two race cars on the top part of the, of the haulers. So uh, it's very, very expensive. When those things, a few of them have been wrecked or caught on fire on the interstate, that's a major, major insurance claim that the team <laughs> has to undertake because those are pretty expensive. Yes, they are indeed. So uh, there you go. There's part one of Stagger University NASCAR 101. That is all you need to know kind of about how these teams exist, what NASCAR is. Part two will feature the race. So... 
that will be the part where we teach you about some of the stuff that actually happens during a race, terms you will hear, what they mean. So look for that coming soon. Wherever you found this podcast, you will find that. Thanks again for checking out Stagger University. And of course, stay staggered.